Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Hello and welcome to Backstory. <clears throat> Bit of a croaky beginning there. This is the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Good to be alive here in Melbourne with you all. And can I just say thank you, everyone. Thank you. It's been so tough. But we got our donut days, no new cases, no more deaths. We've saved lives, stopped a true contagion and we deserve a break. But as the shops open, our trips outside grow longer and we emerge more and more from this extremely, extremely hard lockdown. Let's spare a thought for the people who died, for their families and loved ones. I hope they will get the comfort they need as we start to reach out to each other again. Before I start, though, I would like to acknowledge that I am broadcasting today on the lands of the original storytellers of this place, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation here, where their sovereignty was never ceded. I pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and those of all other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening today. On today's show... Kieran Elliott and his young family return to the small Tasmanian seaside town he grew up in to help his parents pack up their lives. But when a body turns up on the beach, everything Kieran has been running away from, all the secrets, tragedy and death comes rushing to the surface. And soon it's unclear what other secrets will wash up on Evelyn Bay's shore. That's the premise of Jane Harper's latest book, The Survivors where she takes a leap from her signature rural crime to a small beachside community. Jane Harper joins me shortly for a very long-form interview on her latest book, Writing Crime, and how she weaves her vivid small-town plots. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. She could almost have been one of the survivors standing there outlined by the weak light, her back turned and the salt water lapping at her feet. Then she moved, just a small shift in weight and the in-out of breath, but enough to break the illusion before it was fully formed. That's an excerpt from Jane Harper's latest simmering crime, The Survivors. This book follows Kieran Elliott, who has returned with his partner and baby daughter to his small Tasmanian seaside hometown to help his parents pack up their lives. But when a body turns up on the beach, everything Kieran has been running away from, all the secrets, tragedy and death, come rushing to the surface and soon it's unclear what other secrets will wash up on Evelyn Bay's shore. Jane Harper joins me now to talk about The Survivors, a leap from her signature rural crime to a small beachside community. Jane Harper, welcome to Backstory. Hi, how are you? I'm well. Uh, How are you? Yes, I'm good. I'm good. I'm I'm in 
uh, happy to see, you know, Melbourne kind of able to take a few steps towards um, the end of lockdown, which is really exciting. So, um, yeah, I'm really pleased about that. Yeah, it's absolutely, I, I have to say, um, I was thinking about this while I was reading your book. Now, whenever I read anything, I try and remember what it was like to say, for example, have a community meeting or <laughs> be face-to-face with people without a mask. So I'm sort of feeling like, um, you know, the worlds that are created in the books that I read are a lot closer to what my life could soon be, perhaps one day. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I do want to say, Jane, I um, this was, uh, you know, like all of your books, an incredibly ripping read, uh, gripping from the first to the last. And I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, first and foremost, why, how do you keep doing it? How do you keep kind of refreshing a genre, um, refreshing the settings that you're using uh, to make sure that you can keep that sort of freshness to your work, um, even though you are, you know, obviously considering all these kind of complicated plotting mechanisms and things like that? What kind of things do you do to sort of get yourself interested in a particular setup for your books? Yeah, I mean, I think freshness is the key. Um, so The Survivors is my fourth book. Um, uh, and the first one, The Dry, came out um, four years ago now. And, you know, each one of them has been an Australian mystery. And um, they've all sort of, I guess, had a, a similar kind of tone and feel. But at the same time, as an author, you want to give the readers something, you know, a little bit, a little bit different each time as well. Um, and I think, um, you know, for me... A big part of it is, I guess, finding a story that interests me. I always try and write books that I like to read. So, um, you know, I like something with a bit of mystery and suspense and I like twists and turns. And I really like, um, I think, characters that will, will take you through a whole, you know, 300-page journey um, and feel believable and authentic. Um, and then, of course, I really like a great Australian setting. So um, each time, I think, I, I, you know, it's about finding that, that plot that kind of captures my imagination and then trying to kind of weave a story, I guess, that is going to keep people, you know, guessing and keep them engaged and keep them wanting to know what's going to happen um, right through to the last page. People who've read your other books and who who love the kind of settings that you weave will be used to the kind of quite outback, dusty settings that the that have really, um, I guess, the eponymous, the the dry. This idea of a of a quite sort of dry landscape plays a, a role in those books. Here we're in a, a coastal town. Um, water is very much uh, a part of this story. Uh, there's a lot of action and plotting that that moves around the tides uh, of the literal tides um, that are on the doorstep of this this town, I really did feel like, um, as I did with your other books, that you had gotten under the skin of what it's like to live in a place like this. How do you research uh, your settings? Yeah, well, thank you. I'm glad it, it kind of um, struck a chord with you because, you know, I do a lot of research into the settings to make sure they're really authentic. So, um, you know, for the, the first book, The Dry, that was set in kind of regional Victoria, which I, I knew quite well. Then my second book, um, Force of Nature, was in Bushland, also Victoria. Then the third book, Lost Now, was in um, true kind of outback Queensland. And that was, you know, that took a lot of research. And, you know, really, that was a, an incredible kind of experience to really learn about that. And then for this one, The Survivors, it's um, coastal Tasmania. 
yeah. So I always try and go to the places, um, and I go at a really specific point in the writing where um, I, I've got the you know, I've got a really sort of strong idea for the sort of book, and I've done probably a whole kind of first draft, um, doing as much research much research as I can from Melbourne, and then um, I go to the place. Yeah, so this time I went to Tasmania um, earlier this year in, in February. Um, because at that point, I know the gaps in my knowledge and I know what I need to, um, you know, need to fill in. And it also have enough flexibility in the plot to change things because I always learn things that I I didn't know that I needed to know. Um, so in, in The Survivors, for example, there's a, um, a diving scene. The Tasmania has about a 1,000 shipwrecks in its waters, which I thought was too good an opportunity to not use for kind of a, a mystery crime suspense novel. Um and so I arranged to go diving in Tasmania and, you know, get an experience of what that was like firsthand in those waters and what you see and the safety procedures and all those kind of things um, that really, I think, help you kind of hopefully bring those kind of scenes to life. Yeah, and and you really genuinely do. Um, I think I want to really talk about the, the characters as well that you have living in these towns because it isn't simply that you've brought the landscapes to life. You really get this quite intimate relationship between the characters and the, the landscape um, and the town and uh, the sort of relationships you've created within it. Uh, the book does um, sort of come from the perspective of Kieran, who is um, coming back to a hometown. You can tell that something has kept him away for, for years. And as the novel progresses, you get more and more of an idea of what that is. Um, he's uneasy in this small town setting, and yet he's so much a part of it. Can you kind of lay out the map of these characters for us? Yeah, so, I mean, the characters are so important, I think, um, in novels, yeah, to me, both as a reader and a writer. And um, often the, the books are, are often classed as crime, but for me, the, the crime or the mystery is actually really the catalyst for what happens next. And it's that ripple effect and, and how the characters respond and behave that is actually by far more the interesting thing for me. Um, so in The Survivors, um, as, you, as we said, it's set in um, coastal Tasmania in this really small town that is, is, is close-knit in a lot of ways, but it relies heavily on tourism, so it gets, gets influx of visitors every summer. Um, and we um, joined this town at the, the real tail end of summer when um, the, the tourists have kind of melted away and you're left with the, the, the core locals um, and a body is, is discovered on the beach which really throws everything into turmoil and we start to learn more about um, you know, the, the relationships within this town and also historic events and how they may have sort of played into you know, decisions that were made in the present and, um, and how they formed people's lives such as Kieran um, Elliot who is the main character in The Survivors and he is a guy who um, is really... Um, you know, suffering, you know, on a sort of a, a permanent sort of low level with grief and guilt over a decision he made when he was a teenager. And in many ways, he's sort of rebuilt his life and he's he's moved on and he's moved forward. But coming back to his hometown to help his ageing parents, um, I think, gives him that perspective of hindsight with a few years of maturity under his belt and a bit of a different perspective. It, is, it forces him to, I guess, question things as we all do, um, you know, things that we, decisions we made when we were younger and things that we thought to be true. And, and that's kind of where we meet him. 
Yeah, and his relationships, it's, it's really interesting character because his relationships with his, you know, his best friend growing up, Ash, um, with his partner, Mia, who also originally comes from the town but was a bit younger than them, um, and that, you know, these are the, his relationship with his parents, his father who's got um, dementia and his mother who's trying to grapple with that uh, and, of course, um, other characters as well that are brought into it. What I find really interesting is that you've painted a really great picture of someone who, you know, was a sort of small-town footy-playing guy who um, was very influenced by his friends, you know, a lot of sort of, um, you know, of this kind of quite um, toxic masculinity um, in their youth that sort of had a legacy um, that they're grappling with as an adult with much more um, perspective and hindsight. And that's a real undercurrent of this story, this idea of, of toxic masculinity and how it played out in these characters' lives. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, and I think, you know, the thing is with um, themes in, in, in any of the books, and particularly in The Survivors, um, I never really approach a book thinking I'm going to explore any certain theme. Um, I always start with the plot, and then the characters need to tell that plot. And it's really as I'm um, kind of getting to know the characters more during the planning stages, and then um, even more during the writing stages, that, that they're kind of, they really start to come to life. And I, and I think a lot about their background and the kind of, you know, relationship they have and, and what's, I guess, made them into the person they are now. Um, and it's really through that that I think the theme starts to develop quite naturally. So um, in this one, you know, there is a, you know, quite a lot um, of, you know, I guess, I guess that, that sort of idea of, of how um, young guys especially relate to each other and, you know, and how you know, as you get older, you start to, I think, question some of those teenage relationships in a, in a different way. Um, as I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of us have had that experience of going home and maybe reconnecting with old friends or remembering things that we used to get up to. And it feels different with, you know, with a few years and a bit of water under the bridge. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's sort of really the key, um, you know, in the books to, to let, to let those characters, um, connect naturally and, and behave in a really ideally authentic way um, so that themes emerge that we do recognise from our everyday life and they are things that we talk about and we read about in the papers and we discuss online and things. Um, and, you know, and that's, um, I guess, a part of keeping... Um, keeping those characters believable. And I, I should say also that I think as part of that, if you're going, when you, I realise what themes are going to emerge, um, it's important to really try and present those in a you know, an, an authentic and sensitive way. So for the survivors, I spoke to, as well as doing the underground research in Tasmania, I also spoke to um, clinical lead advisors from Beyond Blue, the mental health charity, about guilt and grief and male relationships and how, you know, um, things like um, that can, can impact someone's life and the kind of um, advice they may be offered and things that known to work and things that, you know, are, are sort of thought not to work. And, and I've tried to kind of weave that in throughout the survivors. Yeah, it's a really strong part. And uh, and really, you know, all of the, the actions that happen have some relationship with this kind of idea for how men process uh, emotions, grief, uh, relationships with one another. It's highly pertinent to, to what you create. So I found it a really uh, engaging part of the novel. Um, if you've just joined us, you're listening to to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm speaking with Jane Harper uh, about her latest book, um, 
which is a crime, but much, much more as well. Uh, the survivors set in a small coastal Tasmanian town. Uh, again, a, a much wetter <laughs> environment to many of her previous books um, and really yet another showcase for how well, um, Jane, you kind of do pull in research into the book. Uh, speaking about that, I, I want to touch on a part of the book that I actually found uh, quite amusing and delightful, uh, which was the characterisation of a writer. There's a, a crime writer who appears in the novel, and you've had a lot of fun with him. It's George Barlin or G.R. Barlin. Uh, he's always wearing expensive cardigans. He's caught at one stage or, or spied upon signing his own books in the library. Uh, he has a history of journalism as well and is very thin-skinned about negative reviews and, you know, he's been quite gently or even at times savagely skewered. Um, this is an introduction to him by one of the characters. G.R. Barlin's lower jaw, uh, jaw line was rather less chiselled and his gaze not nearly as piercing as the photo in the back of his books would suggest, but he had the sulky, faraway look down pat. Talk to me about George. Yeah, so George, like George Barlin has has quite a. Um you know, it was, it was a really interesting character for me to write. I should actually um, start by saying that George Barlin is actually a real person, um, his name anyway, and he actually um, was um, a character that was um, named after a family member successfully bid on a, an auction last year to raise money for the Children of the Family charity Bernardos. So it was a very generous donation for someone who was keen to have a character named after um, George Barlin. And as I wanted to give um, them a good one, and I, I really like George because I think he is very layered. You know, there's a, there's a, as you said, he's a very successful writer and he has a lot of kind of interesting, I guess, observations to make. Um, but I think beyond, below that, um, you know, his profession, there's, there's sort of another kind of layer going on with him. And, um, you know, I think when you're writing books, there's, especially, say, you know, a, a crime or mystery novel set in a small town, you know, you want all the characters have to kind of do the heavy lifting. So everybody needs to play a role. And part of that is having insiders and outsiders. And um, George is a really good example of, you know, an outsider. So he is he's from Sydney. Um, and while he has some um, background connections with the town, he has moved there, you know, um, seemingly for inspiration for his, his, you know, his writing. And with his background as a journalist as well, um, he is he is well placed to really, you know, observe and make, you know, judgments. I guess about what is going on in a different way from someone who is a local. He has that little bit of arm's length, um, mm. but also background connection as well. So, yeah, he was a, he was a really he was a really like kind of useful and interesting character, and I had like I had a bit of fun with the fact that he's the writer and the other draw on some of my own. <laughs> Yes, look, I, I have to say as well, I mean, there's more than a few characteristics you've drawn from your own, obviously, experiences as well. You're, uh, you, you have been a journalist for a long time in your career um, and you are someone who, who writes successful crime. Uh, there are no other resemblances that I can see other than that between you and George, but I do think that there's a long and proud tradition of writers, um, particularly crime writers, including a writer character that's usually kind of lampooned quite a bit. Um, were you kind of thinking about those? Was there any sort of inspirational um, sort of writer in literature that you were inspired by when it came to creating George? 
Oh, you know, there wasn't really, but I, I do know what you mean. I think, um, you know, part of the... I mean, part of the reason why, you know, I decided to make, um, you know, I thought George would, would be, as a writer, would be a good character to include was because, you know, when you have these um, yeah, outsiders coming to these small towns, you need to give them a good reason to be there. And, you know, sure, there's, more, there's many reasons why people move to small towns. Um, but having that, you know, that, that combination of him, you know, being quite observant and um, having... Um, I guess a little bit of background knowledge and genuine sort of interest in, in kind of what's going on really helped sort of fit that bill. So I think, you know, for me, a lot of it was kind of the practical reasons of, of what his character is going to contribute. Um, but at the same time, I suppose, you know, you do you do tend to, like it or not, in some ways, tend to sort of start to write what you know to some degree. And um, I think, you know, writers who spend a lot of time sitting alone in your room or occasionally getting let out to go to a writer's festival and hang around other writers. So um, maybe <laughs> subconsciously it probably plays into that. There's some real sardonic humour there. But I also, I was sort of looking through, um, marking off all the, the sections where you mentioned him going, are you, are you trying to get back at a writer that's wronged you at a festival? Or uh, is this, you know, there's always that kind of little delight in seeing how a writer writes about a writer, particularly when it's a, a character that's as um, that, you know that's that's got as many sort of things to poke at as that one. Yeah, I think you know. I mean, the thing is about the, about all characters really is you want the so so I would start saying all my characters are completely fictional, but I think you want to really try and um, tell her lawyers pull those that. elements. Yeah, <laughs> pull those elements to make them feel like they could be real yeah, to the point where you think you know actually I do know someone just like that or that you know I rec- I recognise I've had that conversation myself. So it's it's those kind of things that I think make char- a character feel really authentic to a reader when. You know, you are thinking like, "Gosh, that, that's just like so and so." It's not quite like so and so, but it's a bit like, it's a bit like that conversation I once had with that person. So, um, so I'm I'm glad I guess if you know if you're sort of reading that through and it's, it's ringing a few bells, that that's good. <laughs> uh, now, I, I I would love to continue this conversation. I'm lucky enough to have time to string out this interview, and I'm dying to ask you a few questions, particularly about uh, a TED talk that you recently did around. Uh, creativity. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I've been speaking today to best selling author Jane Harper about her latest book, A Coastal Crime, uh, The Survivors. Uh, but I do want to kind of broaden out our conversation a bit, Jane, from from the book um, to talking about actually the craft of writing itself. You recently did a TED Talk, uh, Creativity in Your Control was the title of it. And I listened to it with, you know, real interest because I feel like you are exactly the kind of uh, writer that, that can really illuminate how writing is very much a craft as well as an art. Can you speak to some of the themes that you raised in that TED talk, particularly um, the three main things that you talked about, really having a passion for what you want to write um, and trying to kind of um, get a sense of how to create the, um, the technical skills that you need and also the fact that creativity is something that grows as you practice it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, you know, I, I, um, I was invited to give that TED talk and um, when I was trying to think about what I wanted to talk about, 
you know, I, I just thought one of the things that people always ask me is, you know, how, like, how do you, how did I write a book? And what they really ask, I think, is how, how can they write a book, you know? And, and something that really frustrated me a lot when I was, had, you know, for years and years had this ambition to, I'd love to write a book. And I, I just couldn't seem to, to get started. And I didn't really know how to do it. And it really frustrated me when, you know, Authors give, I think, you know, well-meaning, like their best advice, but it's very wishy-washy and it's about, you know, maybe feeling the characters or, I don't know, like, like trying to find new inspiration. or And it just doesn't really, it never really helped me in a practical way. And what I really wanted to highlight in that TED Talk was um, the fact that I think, you know, writing is like any other skill, something that can be improved with you know, training and practice and consistency. So, you know, if I wanted to kind of learn to paint watercolours, I wouldn't just buy myself, like, a box of paints and, you know, a brush and have it. Well, maybe you would just have a go, but I wouldn't necessarily expect to get better at it. Um, but, you know, what I would do is I would, you know, I would try and, like, learn about how, how to construct it and what are the best ways to approach it. And, you know, there, there are plenty of people who've developed many, many techniques that I don't have to learn from scratch. I can build on that knowledge and tap into their, their expertise and, you know, use those skills to then try and build my own, you know, um, my own sort of um, technique and, and, and better my own skill set. So I think writing for me is no different, you know, and that's what I was trying to say in the TEDx talk, that it's, you know, that whatever your writing style is, there's practical things that you can do to, to give yourself the best chance. So, you know, work, you know, find um, whatever you, whatever consistency looks like for you. We've all got commitments, but if you can work out a way to work on your project consistently. Um, and another thing um, is, you know, getting those techniques. So, I mean, maybe that would be reading a lot of authors you admire and trying to work out how they're constructing their book or doing a short course or, um, you know, maybe reading some writing books. Yeah, but, but try and get some of those skills under your belt um so that when you actually come to write yourself you 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 kind of have those tools in your toolkit um and the third kind of really um thing that has really helped me was having was planning and having a structure because i think when people are trying to think of a, um, an idea for a book they expect it to be this lightning bolt from the blue with this fully formed story and in fact that's not at all really in my experience what you're looking for what you're looking for is a kind of a, a, you know a, a kernel of an idea that has enough potential for you to grow with it and and you're looking for something that you think you can develop the characters and you could see the plot developing and you could sort of see how this could become a full story and then it's about working through and for me that would be about planning extensively and trying out a lot of different ideas and gradually seeing this story build up rather than thinking it all has to come in one kind of inspirational strike, you know. Um, and so those are things I think whatever you're writing, whatever genre you're writing or whatever kind of book, you know, you want to write and whatever your kind of time frame is, those are things that I, I think could, can really help anybody just, get, you know, get started. You also made a comment that I think is a really pertinent one, particularly to your own experience, um, but to many other people, where you said you didn't just want to write a book and get a publisher, you wanted to write a best-selling book and get a publisher. Um, so you kind of had to put that to one side to actually write the book because you realised, I think to quote you loosely, um, the only thing within your control is writing the book itself. 
Can you sort of explain why that's so important for emerging writers particularly? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the key points of the, you know, in the talk as well, that, um, that, that really, you know, it's so easy to get overwhelmed because writing a book is such a huge, it's a marathon task, you know, it's thousands of words and then the rewards are so uncertain, you know, you don't know if you're going to get a publisher. If you get a publisher, you don't know, you know, how well the book's going to be published and how well it's going to be received and you know you, you can tie yourself up in knots worrying about you know reviews on a book you haven't even written a single chapter of you know so um one thing I would really encourage people to do is to take, allow yourself to take it one step at a time. Like, you don't have to worry about anything else. All you can do is write the best book you can. And to do that, break it down. So, first of all, you know, think of, like, you know, spend time thinking about the best idea you can and then spend the time kind of developing that and trying out the, all these different things so you know that you're telling it in the best possible way. Give yourself kind of short, achievable goals, whatever that looks like. Some people like word counts. Some people like, you know, chapter blocks some people write out of order whatever works for you but set yourself maybe little achievable goals and then maybe a medium longer term goal such as entering it in a competition or submitting it to an agent on a certain you know certain day maybe next year or something like that that you can kind of work towards um and because all you can do all you can do is write the best book you can. You, you, you have no control over what happens after mm. that. Um, and that was a, a really important thing, I think, for me to, to realise. Yeah, the, the unsexiest part of, of the kind of writing equation is this idea of time management as well. And I really want to speak to this, Jane, because you clearly are someone who has that ability. Um, you were a jobbing journalist. You were writing, you know, working full-time as a journalist. So you obviously got into the habit of meeting deadlines and having a daily writing practice, which is probably quite crucial in, in managing time around these bigger tasks. In the last four years, you've produced four novels, a couple of them already international bestsellers, that have been optioned. Um, so you've obviously been really focused in your, you know, as you say, consistent time management around writing. How do you do that if you're not someone with a background in writing? What kind of tips would you suggest? Um, you know, I know a lot of writers who maybe say spend a particular amount of time every day. What kind of advice would you give in terms of that very particular time management idea? Yeah, and, you know, I think it's important to be realistic as well um, because we all have different lives. Um, so I did have the benefit of being a journalist and that really taught me a lot about writing to deadlines. So I did already have that kind of um, inbuilt, I guess, um, habit. But there are plenty of people who haven't been journalists who have written really successful books, you know, that so that's not a barrier at all. Um, and I think it's really important to acknowledge that, you know, not everybody is going to be able to dedicate you know, a, a certain number of, you know, hours per day to their book. You know, I mean, I have two young children um, and the way, you know, honestly, the way I get to write is because I am the person in our household who works full time. So so our, our childcare and everything is, you know, um, split, is weighted quite heavily towards my husband because I am the full time worker in our household. So I get to go off to the, you know, my little office and sit there for eight hours and have the luxury of, you know, um, working in, in peace and quiet. Um, whereas, you know, that wasn't the case when I wrote The Dry. I, I didn't have children, but I was working full-time, and that's not the case for a lot of people. You're having to fit it in around your life. So don't give yourself too hard a time if you can't, you know, you can't do what the writing books and things tell you to do. Try and find something that works for you, even if it's only 20 minutes, half an hour um, at a certain times in the week. Just something that kind of makes you feel like 
you know, you, you can actually see your work building up because that, I think, is very motivational when you can actually see it happening, you know. Do you feel, I know you wrote The Dry, obviously, as you say, while you were working full-time as a journalist. Do you feel like now, and I'm assuming this um, based on what you've said, that you now can write full-time, um, and certainly based on the success of your books, I would hope that that is the case, um, are you finding that that's a difference now, being able to spend more time? Is it, does it have its own challenges? Yeah, I mean, so I, I was able to, um, I wrote The Dry, my first book, when I was working full-time as a journalist, and I used to write that um, for, I didn't have children then, so I used to get up an hour earlier and do an hour before work, and then when I come home, I'd stay in my work clothes and I'd do another hour, and then I'd stop, and then I'd stop, and then I'd go and have dinner or whatever, and that was kind of how I wrote The Dry. Um, and then I was lucky enough to be able to, The Dry did so well, I was able to leave my <laughs> leave my you know, journalism job and become a full-time author. Um, and then I was working, um, you know, that full-time. And I think, and th- but then I, then I started having my children. So I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old mm. now. And um, I think um, it's, it, it, it is different. Like, I, it, it's great to have that. Um, it's really great to be able to do that full-time for sure. But I, I'm really aware that's not the case um, for a lot of people. And I think it's really important to find something that works for you because I was quite interested during lockdown how, seeing all these kind of opinion pieces and things about people who actually find it quite difficult to work from home. And it kind of sounds like the dream, but it's actually quite, you know, an acquired skill. And I found that myself, you know, and it was about finding um, those things that work. So if you can find like a quiet office space or, um, you know, get some paid for childcare or something that just gives you whatever works for you, it'll be different for different people. But I think it's important to be honest with yourself about what you need in order to work. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Jane Harper about her latest book, The Survivors, but also about um, the hard work and craft and time management that goes into uh, the job of being a writer because it is a job um, and I am really pleased to see um, you putting something out there that really, you know, demystifies some of those those elements. Something I do want to talk to you about now is uh, obviously um, your books are – you know, have been successful enough uh, to have attracted uh, adaptations. I believe one is imminently to be uh, released or perhaps COVID allowing to be um, released. I'm wondering, uh, different authors have got different arrangements when books are optioned in terms of their involvement in the writing process. What has been your relationship with adaptation of your books? Yeah, so, um, yeah, so I, I, it, it's, it's really, I think it's really great to have the interest in um, people being willing to adapt to books because it takes a lot of time and money and effort for someone to adapt a book into a film. So to have the people who are willing to, you know, make that investment is a really kind of, um, is a really great kind of endorsement to have, I guess. Um, so The Survivors has, um, is being optioned for a TV series, which is really exciting. That's still got to be some years away yet, but um, I'm excited to kind of, that's, I feel like it's like a really good hand. So we'll see, um, I'm excited to see what happens with that. And then more um, imminently is The Dry, which is my first book, which was is um, due for release in cinemas um, nationwide in Australia on January 1st. Um, the trailer has just been released um, in the last couple of days and I think it's a really kind of sums up the film in such a, an, an incredible way. So if you check it out, um, if you, you know, if you like the book, um, I think you will really like the film. It's a really great um, adaptation. Um, and I think, you know, for different authors, everybody will have a different conversation with, um, I guess, when it comes to optioning their books. And for me, you know, the, 
the novels are the most important thing. Like, that's what I do best, and that's kind of where I think it's really important to put my focus. So I'm I'm happy kind of passing the books on to people I trust to do a good adaptation and giving them the creative freedom to, I guess, do what they need to do to make it the best possible adaptation they can. Um, and then, yeah, just making myself available when needed for questions. Or um, I got to be an extra in the dry, actually. I, I definitely made myself available <laughs> I was going to ask. <laughs> it, it is something that, that tends to happen is that authors are offered cameos. Can you say anything about that? You, so you just have to keep an eye out. Do you flash on and off screen or do you have a little <laughs> yeah. speaking part? No, I think so. I mean, I think caveats are a little bit generous. Even I, it was, it's, it's definitely, I would say, an extras role, um, which I was absolutely delighted to do. But um, they were filming um, the dry up in um, northwest of Victoria last summer, and they um, in the dry there's the funeral wake scenes really early on, and so they need obviously people for that, and that was a really good opportunity. So me and sort of a, a dozen of my you know closest family friends had to come trail up there to. Um, uh, to, to take part, and it was really exciting. So, you know, we got to um, see how I was filming it. Um, where I'm in the second row of the church in the funeral scene, if you if you keep an eye out. Um, and then I'm holding, I think, a, a warm glass of dry white wine, you know, when I'm um, in, at the wake. Um, and it was really fun, you know. I got to, um, got to meet Eric Banner, who is starring as Aaron Fork, and he's a lead character in The Dry, and, and, and just see, I guess, see how it was all coming together and things. So it was a really amazing opportunity. How was that? Was it surreal? Because, I mean, I remember a, a friend made a, a film, um, a documentary about, um, you know, a, a sort of adaptation of, of a Beatles um you know, Beatles soundtrack for a Cirque du Soleil film. Um, and there's a moment when um, Paul McCartney sort of says, it was such a little thing. I, I was writing it on the back of a napkin, this this song, and now look at what it is. Um, I'm sure he's probably had more of those moments than anyone on earth. Um, but how was it for you, this thing that was just something in your head and then something that you tapped into a computer that's now got the embodiment in, you know, this person, Eric Banner, for example, or this scene that you could literally walk in to was that a strange kind of um, surreal experience for you yeah yeah it was surreal is exactly the word for it because I remember sitting at my desk you know um, at home like writing the dry and thinking about characters names and just saying oh well you know that that sounds like a a good name I'll just use that and then fast forward a few years and I'm sitting in a church um, you know holding a, a real life kind of order of service card watching a montage of is playing these characters and hearing like a eulogy for these, these characters that I, I remember so vividly just creating on, on paper and, and it was it was very moving actually because it felt it felt really real, you know, it's it was it was very it felt very authentic and um but it was so strange to look at yeah, look I mean particularly looking at the names on the funeral service and just thinking, um well, you know, I I remember when I was writing the dry just creating these characters and, and now look here we are and it's you know uh, this, this is what it's become now I know this is an unfair thing to ask because authors um, are usually working on something and you're particularly prolific and I imagine that you do have something on the go but I'm wondering it's a more general question that I have you have obviously fallen in love with these small town settings I think there is a real kind of um, character management benefit to that because obviously a small town is contained um, you have that kind of cl- almost um, you know closed cast of characters that could potentially be the person who committed the crime 
crime, for example, and the tense relationships of a small town. Have you thought about setting something in in the town that you live in, Melbourne, particularly, um, I suppose, we have had some quite dramatic events recently that have meant that our, our worlds have contracted somewhat? Yeah, you know, the setting is it's a it's a good question. It's something that um, you know, I think about. Um, yeah, I do think about from time to time actually, um, because I do spend quite a lot of time thinking about where I'm going to set the books. And I think you've you've hit the nail on the head really with all the books here, you know, from the dry right through to the survivors. They're all sort of set in these small kind of communities or closed in locations, I guess. Um, and part of that is you know the creative aspect that I think the settings is really a kind of a real gift for writers and they really add that kind of um, sense of like suspense and menace and yeah danger and um, you, you know that that kind of real claustrophobic feel I think to um, to the books um, and the landscape just really adds you know because kind of the beauty of you know the setting um, but then it also has that practical reason where in small towns and um, you don't have a thousand people coming and going every day. You've got quite a, a tight cast of characters, which I think just helps me write the kind of books that I like to write. Um, but I have thought, you know, I mean, about a big city setting. And I think, you know, if, if a, a plot came to me um, that required that, absolutely, I would do that. My, my only hesitation really would be that um, when you set things in small towns, you can completely fictionalise them. So even though the region ideally feels familiar and is really recognisable to people who know that region, um, the, the town itself is is completely fictional. Whereas somewhere like you know, Melbourne, um, people have people know it. They have their own opinions. <laughs> you know, we all have our own experiences of it. So how how to capture that would be, I guess, the question. Absolutely. I uh, look forward to seeing whether or not that emerges. Uh, Jane Harper, I cannot believe that we've already managed to talk for nearly the whole show because I really feel like we've just scratched the surface of the incredible uh, body of work that you've already produced and in um, quite a short space of time. Um, I do I do just want to uh, finish, finish up the interview um, by saying, what are you looking forward to now? You're a Melbourneian. Um, that lockdown has started to ease. Yeah, look, I think, you know, we've all done such an amazing job with lockdown. Um, you know, I mean, people have such different circumstances. And, you know, I guess I've been luckier than most in that people have still been reading books, you know, and, and, and I, you know, work, you know, alone and from home anyway, really. So, you know, I've been more fortunate than a lot of people. But I think, you know, congratulations to us all for, like, this amazing job we've done to get these numbers to what they are. I'm just, I'm so proud of everybody and I'm so happy that, you know, we've we've done it, really. Um, and I think, you know, um, I guess for me, like, the, the the best thing will be, I suppose, being able to tell my, my child yes rather than no. You know, it was great when the playgrounds reopened and finally it wasn't like, no, everything's closed. Um, you know, we can actually say, yes, you can, yes, we can go and go to the cafe and yes, we can, you know, maybe catch up with your friends and just be able to, do, you know, do those kind of things that I think really, you know, I was totally guilty of taking for granted before, but um, I really hope that I, I never do again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think any of us will. Well, Jane Harper, thank you so much and for being so generous uh, with your time uh, here on Backstory today. Oh, thank you. That was uh, Jane Harper, uh, author of um, her latest book, uh, The Survivors, her fourth in uh, a few years. If you uh, enjoy this book as well, uh, go back and read uh, the other three. I think you will equally equally enjoy them. And I'm looking forward to seeing the adaptation of The Dry um, being released next year.
That's just about all we have time for today on Backstory. Before we go, though, I would like to mention an upcoming event and one that I'm really happy to see emerging. Uh, The first ever editing micro festival kicks off on the 13th to the 15th of November. Uh, The festival is going to feature a lineup of guests, Q&As and workshops exploring the craft of editing and the relationship between writers and editors, which is one that I'm sure um, if we had even more time with Jane we could explore as well because that relationship is often unseen and unsung um, but it's an incredibly important one. Uh, Having been an editor although in magazine for many many years I uh, very much um, you know enjoy seeing these kinds of things brought out to the public. Uh, If you're interested in attending the festival uh, tickets are available now. Uh, You can check for details on editingmicrofest.wordpress.com it's pay what you feel and the apparently 50% of the profits are to be donated to pay the rent. Um, that's kind of bringing us very close to the end of the show. Uh, again, I just can't um, believe that it's already uh, that time. Um, I want to thank my guest, uh, the wonderful Jane Harper, uh, whose book The Survivors is obviously out now through Pan Macmillan. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.